The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you now to uh, take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Genesis and Genesis 25. Uh, If you need a Bible, grab one from the pew rack in front of you and open to page 19 in Genesis 25. Uh, And also, if you'd like to do so now, we're going to have a New Testament reading that we're going to turn to eventually, but not just yet. So if you want to flip forward into the New Testament in Romans 9 and put a pencil there or put a piece of paper there or something in Romans 9 uh, at page 945, uh, you'll be helped later on when we go there eventually. But our Old Testament reading is from Genesis 25, New Testament from uh, Romans chapter 9. So as you're flipping around, uh, Genesis 25, Romans 9, uh, you see the sermon title today, Family Drama, right? Family Drama. Don't be deceived. Your family isn't the only one that has it, okay? Oftentimes we think that that might be true. There's drama in your family. There's drama in your neighbor's family. There's drama in everybody's family, actually. And yes, even it's true that there's drama in the family of God. Everybody's family has some sort of drama or tension. Even, or we should say, especially in the family of God, the covenant family of Jesus Christ. The lineage of Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament, the storyline of the Old Testament, is full of family drama. Where we are is in the second week of returning back to the book of Genesis as we continue the narrative of the family of God through the family of Abraham, now in its second and third generation, as we're saying, the covenant continues in the life of uh, Isaac and Jacob. So, we're picking up on the next chapters and the next generations of the family of God here in the book of Genesis at verse uh, chapter 25 through uh, 35. And we'll say that, again, that what we find is that this is high drama. And especially our passage today is something of a very short depiction, but the events of this chapter really provide a foundation of tension and drama that will be true for the whole story of the generations of Isaac and Jacob. And so the events that happen today that we'll see in Genesis 25 underlay a long period of family drama. Or, another way of thinking about it, the things that happen today that we're going to read about will produce beef between generations that they will go on and on to say, we remember the day that that happened. And we're not going to forget it. Because oftentimes, family drama is rooted in long since past events that people are not able to deal with, forgive, or get past. Right? That is the case in this chapter today. So our text today lays the groundwork for the primary tension running throughout the next ten chapters of Genesis, but even all throughout the rest of the Scriptures. So, if you've got your copy of God's Word in Genesis 25, let's pray and ask uh, the Spirit's blessing upon the Word today. Well, great God, we, we bow now to say that we are thankful for the Bible, and we are thankful that You, by Your Holy Spirit, inspired these words for us, that we might receive them now as Your uh, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word to Your people. Lord, we cannot read and understand the Bible without Your Spirit. So would You please enable the Spirit that dwells within us to illuminate our minds. Or if perhaps the Spirit does not live within us, would you send your Spirit upon the hearts of those 
who have not yet trusted in Christ, that they might, by the unveiling of your word to them, come into faith through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And now hear God's word at Genesis uh, chapter 25 at verse 19 through 34. This is the word of God. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So do keep your Bible open there and take a glance at your outline there in your bulletin as we see three scenes to this family drama from barren to boxing match the most controversial twins ever, and the allure of lentil soup. So, this family drama takes place in the midst of what is called uh, a taladote. There at verse 19, Genesis 25, verse 19, you'll see these words, These are the generations of. You might be interested to know that the book of Genesis is structured around ten repetitions of that phrase. These are the generations of. And every time you have these are the generations of, it is like a new era is being marked in the book of Genesis. So there are ten of these, they're called taladotes in the book of Genesis, that move the family story forward. If you were to look back in the, at the end of chapter 11, in preparation for the story of Abraham, you have in Genesis eleven twenty seven. These are the generations of Terah, who would be Abraham's father. And so the story of Abraham happens under the heading of the generations of Terah. Well, there's a new era that we're looking at here. 
as we undertake a new generation of the patriarchal lineage, in verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. So we're approaching new territory. And this, uh, this, this period, this era of Genesis is going to run from chapter 25 through chapter 35 as we enter into the generations of Isaac and Isaac's son, Jacob. It's actually interesting to note that Isaac, for as much attention as he gets under the generations of Terah through Abraham's story, actually only gets very limited attention in this section of 25 through 35. Really, the attention is on the third generation, Jacob. But how Jacob comes onto the scene is important because of his father, Isaac. So all that to say, we're in this new era of Genesis, and this new era of Genesis is packed full of this family drama, and we want to see it in these three scenes as you see them laid out there in your outline. So first of all, the scene from Barron's boxing match in verses 19 through 22. You find Isaac's name there right away. Isaac is the miracle child of Abraham who was born to Abraham in Abraham's 100th year by his wife Sarah in Sarah's 90th year after a long period of Sarah's barrenness. Sarah went 90 years without children, but in her 90th year she bore Isaac. And if you remember the story, or if you want a reminder, Abraham knew that God told him, you will have a son. But Abraham just couldn't imagine how this was going to happen, and Sarah certainly couldn't either. And so, in the course of the story, in Genesis 16, Sarah says, well, Abraham, if you're going to have a son, it's not going to be by me. And she sets forward her maidservant, Hagar, and Abraham and Hagar bear Ishmael. But God tells Abraham that Ishmael is not the promised son. Even though he's Abraham's firstborn, he is not the promised son. Abraham and Sarah think that God needed help to accomplish his purposes. Abraham and Sarah believe that God needed their assistance. And so we learn throughout Abraham's story, and as we are reminded here in verse 19, that Isaac is Abraham's promised son, that God can accomplish his word without human assistance. God is able to fulfill his promises without our help or manipulation. And it seems, early on we find, that Isaac has learned the lesson that his father Abraham struggled to learn. Because as we learn of Isaac, we find that Isaac and his wife Rebekah are also barren and without a child. And that they wait some 20 years to bear children, though they had that great desire to do so. He and Rebekah wait. They wait with faith. They wait with hope. They wait with trust. But they wait. They don't try to manipulate like Abraham and Sarah did. They wait patiently under God's timing, which is ultimately the promise of God's great covenant that a seed of the woman will be a savior for all mankind. The promise of a child to a barren woman is a, a, a standard uh, type throughout all of the scripture that we eventually find in the fulfillment of Jesus' own birth. But God's faithfulness is here present to a new generation where Isaac longs for a child, Rebekah longs for a child, but they wait patiently with hope because Isaac has learned that he can count on the God of his father, Abraham. That's an important lesson here, but it's not the main point. The main point here is that Rebekah, who has long waited to conceive, doesn't understand women who say things like, I just love to be pregnant. There are some women who say that. Being pregnant is the best thing ever. Rebecca 
totally disagrees with that. Because you find this detail in verse 22 that the children struggled within her. The Hebrew uh, terminology here is much more graphic. The Hebrew language literally says that the children smashed about within Rebekah's womb. It's very violent, this depiction. Her womb becomes something of a battlefield, a boxing match, where Rebekah, who has longed to be pregnant, now says, Good grief, what did I long for this for? Where she says in verse 22, What's going on? What is happening to me? What is happening within me? And so the text says she inquires upon the Lord. And what she hears back from the Lord in His grace has far-reaching implications that we're still talking about today. And really, what she hears from the Lord has far-reaching implications for all the story of redemption because she doesn't just have one child within her, but two. It's twins. And we find that these twins in Rebecca's womb are, throughout Scripture, the most controversial twins that have ever existed. And let's see why. Scene one from Baron to boxing match then turns to scene two, the most controversial twins ever. We fast forward to their birth and these two from the same womb, these two sons are worlds apart. Look at verse 25 and see that the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and so they called his name Esau. They're twins, but Esau comes out first. Have you ever known twins to do this? They remind each other, well, I was born first. Yeah, one hour apart or five minutes apart, but I was still first. But Esau is first. And then, secondly, in verse 26 comes Jacob. But he's called Jacob because this one comes out holding his brother's heel. So they're birthed very much at a similar time. But Esau is first, but Jacob comes grabbing on to Esau's heel, which is why he is called Jacob, a name which literally means he takes by the heel or he is a cheater. So Esau and Jacob. And the fact that Jacob is born grabbing hold of Esau's heel is a picture that he is trying to trip him up or overtake him. And that will be true of Jacob's whole life in his relationship with his twin brother. He is a cheater. He is a deceiver. He is a heel grabber. He is an overreacher, which is what the word also means. And then they grow up and you have additional descriptions of these two twins, very controversial twins, born almost at the same time, but Esau first. Esau is a man. He's a man's man, as it were. Verse 27 says that he is a man of the land. He's a skillful hunter. He's a man of the field. He is a man who has his own wits about him to take care of his own business and handle things. And Jacob, on the other hand, is a man, maybe we could say, of the mind. More brain than brawn, perhaps. In fact, the Scriptures describe him there in verse 27 as a quiet man, and also this description that he dwells in tents. Well, everybody dwells in tents at this time, so what's the point of that? The point of that is not just that he is some sort of uh, retiring figure who never wants to come outside, but rather that he dwelt in tents in the sense that Jacob is constantly in the place of doing deals because business transactions took place in the tent. 
The place of commerce was there inside where we could sit and meet together and come to terms of agreements. So Jacob is a quiet man dwelling in tents in the sense that he is a man of commerce, a man of business, a man who knows the art of the deal, as it were, compared to Esau, who Esau is out making his own way happen. Jacob is over there slying his own way, wheeling and dealing for his own way. That's the distinction there. And these two twins, we find, divide their parents' affections because Isaac likes what Esau kills so he can eat it. And Rebekah likes the fact that Jacob stays around largely in the tents. Rebekah loved her son who stays home. Isaac loved Esau who goes out and hunts and produces meat. So what you have here is stage set for ultimate family drama that will be true for their entire lives. Sibling rivalry to the highest degree because Jacob and Esau will live in tension together their entire lives and not only because of these kind of family reasons that are oftentimes ordinary family reasons, they have a sibling rivalry that exceeds all sibling rivalries for reason of what verse 23 tells us. So before the twins are born, when Rebecca goes to the Lord and says, Lord, what in the world is going on within me? She receives a word from the Lord to describe what is happening that goes beyond just why these two are in some sort of warring boxing match within her womb. But look again at verse 23. At verse 23, the Lord says to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So Rebecca's womb is host to something that is beyond just the fact that Rebecca is having twins. These twin boys represent two nations, or two kinds of people, two groups of people that will be divided against each other for all history. Convention is going to be overthrown by these twins because God says to Rebecca, the older shall serve the younger, and that's not usually how it works. In, in this ancient Near Eastern culture, there is the practice of primogeniture, which is the first child is always the priority. The first child always gets the greatest share. The first child always gets the attention. And the Lord is saying, in this case... The older shall serve the younger. Why? Why? Again, Rebecca's womb is host to one of the most staggering mysteries of all of God's purposes. God does not do things the way that we expect Him to do. If you think back through some of the history of the Old Testament already, Abel's offering was accepted while Cain's offering was rejected. And the line of Seth is chosen over Cain's line. Isaac is chosen over Ishmael. Even though Ishmael was born first to Abraham, God says, no, Isaac is the covenant son. And here, in this case, you have twins. And God says, this twin is chosen to continue the covenant line, and this twin is passed over. And everybody wants to know, why does God do this? What we're talking about here is the mysterious and sovereign teaching of the Bible that God from all eternity sets His covenant grace upon some and not others. 
What the Bible is teaching here is that tradition does not determine grace. So keep your Bible open there in Genesis 25, but do come forward with me into the book of Romans. Because in the book of Romans, Paul takes this very instance of these very twins, Jacob and Esau, to explain why God does what He does relative to His sovereign grace. In Romans chapter 9, Romans 9 at verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, because they are are his offspring. So what Paul is setting up here is an explanation of who is in God's family, or who is in the covenant line, who is chosen of grace. And he establishes here at the very front, it's not according to external realities. It's not just according to descendancy. When he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, he's going to explain why God makes a distinction between those who are in His family truly and those who are not. And he teaches it by way of this illustration. Again, verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That's a reference to Isaac's birth. And then Paul says in verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah, this is the events of Genesis 25, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The quote there from verse 13 is a quote out of Malachi. The citation from verse 12 is from Genesis 25, verse 23. The Apostle Paul takes these twin boys and says... These controversial twins are the illustrative evidence, the demonstrating picture of why God in His sovereign grace sets electing love upon some and passes over others. Look at it again in verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, look, these two twin boys, they're not even born yet. They had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So, Jacob is the heir of electing love and grace not because he's better than Esau, not because he's more talented or more handsome or anything. Jacob is the heir of God's electing love and grace because God says so because it is God's purpose of election. They're not even born yet, and God says, this is the way. God sets His covenant mercy upon Jacob and passes over Esau, and that's what it means to hate Esau in this relative sense. God chooses Jacob to show that salvation is all of grace from start to finish. And so, to the person who says, but that's not fair! 
That's not fair. Well, Paul has an answer to that there in verse 14 when he says, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice? And he has his own answer there, but we're not concerned with that. We want to be concerned with what the text says back in chapter 25. So go back with me to Genesis 25. We have seen that these two warring twins are the most controversial twins ever, not just because they are uh, dramatic within themselves, but because they are the demonstration of why God does what He does, irrespective of us in His sovereign grace. They're not even born yet. They haven't done anything good or bad, but God still says the older will serve the younger. Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have passed over. And we can see this in scene 3. In scene 3 at verses 29 to 34, we see the allure of lentil soup. So this dysfunction and drama are on full display here because the boys are older. Esau comes in from the field. And the irony here is that the great hunter is empty-handed. The great hunter is without any game. And there is Jacob cooking stew. And it could have been a great opportunity for Esau to say, hey, bro, can I have some stew? And he would have said, yeah, here's some. Take some. Enjoy it. But that's not the case at all because Jacob is a schemer. Jacob is a manipulator. That's what he is. Jacob schemes right away there in verse 31 and says, Esau, you want some stew? Sell me your birthright. You're not going to say that to anybody at lunch today when they say, hey, pass the bread, and you say, sell me your birthright, and then I'll pass you the bread. But the birthright is Esau's right as the firstborn son who by order of birth would have received a double portion of inheritance from his father because he was firstborn. And Jacob knows that, so he says, look, I'll trade you the soup for the birthright. And Esau says to him in verse 32, what, what, what good is the birthright to me? I want to eat right now. Who cares about what I'm going to inherit one day? I'm hungry now. See that Esau is mindful only of the present. And so Jacob says, no, 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 swear it to me in verse 33. Jacob is not content with just a verbal commitment from Esau for his birthright. He wants Esau to swear an oath, to invoke the name of God and swear to God that I will give you this birthright for this stew. And Esau does just that in verse 34. It says, despising his birthright. The focus there is on what Esau does relative to despising his birthright, where Esau trades his birthright, swears it off even, I swear to God that I will not receive this and give it to you, even though he is the firstborn of all his father's household, he would have received a double portion from his father, from his grandfather even, Abraham, who had a vast fortune. So don't think of this as some minuscule thing. Esau is swearing off the inheritance of Abraham, and Esau does not regard his birthright. Esau considers the entirety of his birthright to be worth less than a cup of soup and a piece of bread. The book of Hebrews explains this in Hebrews 12, 15, and 17, calling Esau unholy because he sold his birthright for a single meal. The point that I want us to see in the text is that it is not unfair of God to pass over Esau because Esau does not value 
his place within the covenant. It's not unfair of God to pass over the person who doesn't value what God might give him. When God passed over Esau and chose Jacob, Esau was content for the exact same reason why masses of people were content to not come into Noah's ark. Because they didn't see any reason to be concerned. It is not unjust of God to do what He does in the Scriptures. When people, crowds, the broad road stands by, totally content. They don't value the shelter of the ark because they see no real threat for themselves. And the point in the text is that Esau doesn't value God's covenant mercy. And so the focus here is that it's only Esau who seems to be immediately judged harshly here. But I want you to see also that Jacob is no innocent man. Jacob should have never tried by manipulation and maniacal thoughts here to take Esau's birthright because it was actually his all along. It was always God's purposes to give to Jacob that covenantal inheritance. Not just the, the, the fiscal inheritance, but the inheritance of covenant mercy and grace. Jacob should have never tried to take from Esau what was actually his all along, but Jacob also doesn't value God's covenant either. The covenant promise is not sufficient for Jacob. The lesson that his father Isaac had learned is one that clearly Jacob has already forgotten, and so Jacob is not upstanding in any sense whatsoever. And this is the glory of this passage, if you're still with me. Both of these twins are sinners. Both of these twins are undeserving. Both of these two men are less than ideal, if we could say. They are not in any sense champions of righteousness. And if you are writing this story, this is why I'm totally convinced that the Bible is God's inspired word. If you were making this up, you would write Jacob as a hero, upright in all moral virtue, never doing anything wrong. But Jacob is written as he is a deceiver. A cheat. One who grabs at Esau's heel to take. Jacob is a sinner, a schemer, a plotter. But he is a picture of how God's grace works with the most unpromising raw materials. That is the point of the text. The point of the text is not that Jacob is better than Esau. The point of the text is that God in His sovereign grace sets mercy upon Jacob and passes over Esau. And here is how it connects us to the importance of the gospel and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Because the wonder of God's grace in Jesus Christ isn't that He saves some people from their sins and not their others. Not other people. The wonder of the gospel is that God saves anybody from their sins. So it is not the case that mercy is given to those who are deserving. Because if mercy is given to those who deserve it, then it's not mercy. Grace can only be grace if it's given to the person who doesn't deserve it. It's what makes grace grace, isn't it? This family story 
which is ultimately the family story of Jesus Christ because this is his lineage. These are his descendants. This is a family that is itself dysfunctional, itself full of sinners, a family itself that needs a Savior, just like you need a Savior, just like your family needs a Savior. This family needs a Savior as well, and God has promised to deliver him one day. But that's long into the future from Genesis 25, but the promises are on the way. This is good news that for all of the dysfunction of God's people, it is God's purposes and promises that hold fast because God's mercy is not given out according to our deserving. It's given out according to His sovereign mercy. So know for sure that if you are a Christian believer, it's not because you're better than your unbelieving neighbor. It's not because you're smarter than them. It's not because you're more righteous than them. It's not because you are more deserving than them in any sense whatsoever. It is simply because God has chosen to set grace upon those who are undeserving to make them trophies of His grace so that it is His grace that gets magnified rather than the person getting to say, I'm great. Instead we say, no, God is great in His grace. So sinners like Jacob become trophies of God's grace. This episode, here in three scenes, is going to be the foundation for a lifetime of strife between these two brothers. But it will also be eternally in God's purpose a picture of His sovereign mercy, not only for Jacob, but for you and I who believe in the God of Jacob, who is the Lord Jesus Christ And we will continue to learn this story as we unpack God's Word together. But know for sure today that grace is only grace because it goes to the undeserving. And that means people like me and people like you. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we give You our praise today. Not because we are righteous within ourselves, but only because of the work of Jesus Christ who takes unpromising material and works sovereign grace and purposes to make us signposts and trophies and people of mercy and grace. So Lord, would you please bless your people with the knowledge that comes from your word that we might give you eternal praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington epc.org. May God bless and keep you.